of a progressive and a libertarian walk into a bar. We're going to try something different today and have an interview with economist Gene Epstein. He's uh, the head of the Soho Forum, a debate series in New York. You can hear it on Reason Podcast, uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts at. Uh, You can see it on YouTube. Uh, They're wonderful debates, uh, usually a libertarian versus somebody. Uh, progressive or conservative. Uh, in May, I know the great Scott Horton is going to be debating uh, Bill Crystal. I'm so looking forward to that one. Uh, and he was the economics editor for Barron's Magazine for years, and he also worked on Wall Street. So um, he's a libertarian that came from the extreme far left to find libertarianism. So without further ado, Gene Epstein. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of a progressive and a libertarian walk into a bar. I'm Sean O. I'm Bernie S. And today we're being joined by uh, Gene Epstein, um, the leader of the Soho Forum, a debate series in New York, um, mm-hmm. where they talk about. Um, I guess would you say it's always libertarian issues? Yeah, it's well. Uh, I'm a libertarian, and certainly uh, I, I I determine who debates and what the topics are. So, and those are issues that are of interest to me. Uh-huh. So, presumably of interest to libertarians, but uh, hopefully of interest to progressives uh, as well. Yeah, I've, I, I, that's where I found you uh, with the debate with uh, ba- Baskar. That was great. I oh. love that. Oh, that was a while back. Yeah. yeah. Most recently, I debated Richard Wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, the two, the two of them are uh, debate at a debate the week a week later, uh, uh-huh. so they they know each other. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that was a great one, and I just listened to the one on Social Security last night. So I found that one really oh. interesting because I'm blind, so you know I uh, I do have to deal with that stuff a lot. So I found oh, really? that yeah, oh, I found uh, that to be an interesting, uh, very interesting topic, mm-hmm. and scary about how the government's mishandled everything. <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, is there any um. I guess let's start off with our first question because I, I had originally uh, contacted Gene because I was looking for some help in uh, sharpening my argument on um, money and politics, and everybody oh. always yeah everybody always asks me you know like uh, you know how can you know if libertarians aren't for you know like getting money out of politics or yeah money out of politics um, you know how can we have a non corrupt system and. Gene had a you know kind of turned the tables on it and said we need to take politics out of money. So could you explain that to people a little bit more, Gene, please? Yeah, well, it, I think that uh, it's going to be pretty hopeless uh, to uh, to level the playing field in elections uh, by taking money out of politics. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the there are too many exemptions. I mean, it's just the Karl Roves of this world are going to uh, invest in media companies and then use those media companies for their own propaganda. And so uh, the, the, whatever you do uh, in a uh, free society, it's going to be virtually impossible 
uh, to make much of a difference. I mean, with that said, I think I think the uh, the argument that money makes such an overwhelming difference in politics is clearly overstated. Of course, the most the, the recent notorious example of Hillary Clinton spending more than double what Trump spent indicates something. But that aside, uh, while probably the rules and regs about limiting the money you can spend are not going to make any difference, if anything, they'll probably strengthen the incumbents uh, because uh, the incumbents get naturally more attention. But uh, the ultimate uh, solution is, of course, to take politics out of money. When you have uh, so many trillions of dollars worth of outcomes that, that are determined by whoever is in power, uh, then clearly money is going to gravitate to politics. Mm -hmm. And so that's the only real solution. Uh, anything else is probably just going to make matters worse. Mm -hmm. So how, how would you suggest um, making that happen, getting money out of politics, just banning um, political donations altogether, having tax fund, well, uh, taxpayer funded? No, I, I'm sure, forgive me. I, I know you I, I obviously haven't made myself clear. What I'm really saying is that whatever limit you place on, uh, on, on that, it, it's only going to make matters worse. What I'm trying to say is that, uh, that whoever gets elected, uh, certainly get whoever takes the White House, uh, uh, has control over trillions of dollars worth of outcomes. And so the stakes are high. But if we, uh, the, the only solution is to return to the spirit of the Constitution and understand that uh, most of what uh, most of what President Trump does is un un unconstitutional. Recognize that there are only very limited powers that are granted to the federal government, and roll it back to the original vision of the founding fathers, so that they don't control trillions of dollars worth of outcomes. But if you mm -hmm. put some kind of cap on what's going to be donated, and then as I said, all that's going to happen is that the various workarounds and loopholes are going to be found by the people who really have the money. Yep. Uh, the the people who really have the money then are probably the easiest strategy is for them to buy up media companies uh, and uh, and then run those media companies just according to their own political life. The media companies then won't make a profit for them. They, they'll be run at a loss, but that's not going to be the objective. The objective will be to put out their information because, of course, media companies are exempt. That's why it's a hopeless enterprise. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's, a great, there's a great joke that uh, you guys may be too young to remember, Eugene McCarthy, who who challenged uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, in uh, for the, for the uh, nomination in '68? Johnson ultimately dropped out, but McCarthy was able to raise money very quickly to enter the primaries, and he at that time was against any kind of limitation. He said, I was only able to enter quickly because I got a few deep pockets millionaires to invest in me and his joke was that that you people who want who want to limit spending would would find uh, the that final part of the Declaration of Independence we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes and our sacred honor that would be rewritten this today to read we mutually pledge to each other our lives our sacred honor and anything up to a thousand dollars was McCarthy's joke and of course 
uh, McCarthy might have complained a little less uh, had and this, of course, was in 1960 for the new 68 primary. So that's many years ago. But these mm. days, of course, you can raise a lot of money through crowdfunding. Uh, mm. And so that helps. But again, all I'm saying is that there's no evidence that uh, that, that, that any of the rules and regs that limit uh, the limit campaign spending help. Again, Bear in mind the realities. The incumbent has has an inherent advantage, as LBJ did. The incumbent has to buy airtime, and uh, and that I'm, I'm sorry, not the incumbent. The challenger mm-hmm. has to buy airtime, and therefore, if you start limiting contributions, all you're going to do is strengthen the incumbent. Right. So it's a hopeless enterprise. But again, the the solution is is to lower the stakes. The solution is to recognize that we don't want you know Donald Trump. Uh, telling us whether whether or not we can buy uh, buy from the Chinese or not, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want we don't want Donald Trump deciding where we're next going to invade. Uh, that's a lot of power. Uh, that's a lot of power over trillions of dollars worth of outcomes. That's the only solution. Good. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Gene, uh, yeah. before we jump on to the next question, just a um, just a quick question for you. Uh, would you yeah. be able to give our listeners uh, a quick background on your journey from being a progressive to a libertarian? Oh well, I mean, I, I did. I was at one point progressive because I started out as a as a as a, as a communist, oh, yeah. a socialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother was a card-carrying communist, as was I. No, I mean, I, I I didn't belong to the party because I I was only ten years old or seven mm-hmm. years old at the time. But um, I went uh, pretty much uh, the full gamut. Uh, I was, uh, you know, sort of basically a democratic socialist in my 20s, uh, favoring uh, the Great Society of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and then uh, I started to read uh, the Austrian Economist and evolved uh, into what I would call, as I, as I called myself when I debated Richard Wolff a month ago, a, uh, I'm still a bleeding heart. Uh, I'm a bleeding heart, freedom-loving capitalist. And uh, I, th- I think that um, that when you when you uh, when you look at all of the things that the progressives champion, I mean, I know they're well intentioned. A lot of them are my friends, mm-hmm. but I think that they uh, don't recognize uh, they're they're sort of tone deaf to the way in which uh, the, uh, the the broad masses of people are enriched by capitalism. They don't they're tone deaf to the point that if you just let capitalism happen. Uh, then you will get all the best outcomes you possibly can want in terms of lifting the living standards of the broad masses of people. I mean, understanding, for example, that that labor unions are actually just cartels, and then understanding beyond that how wages rise in a competitive labor market and how unions basically interfere with that process and uh, and, and actually cause wage and income in, uh, inequality rather than helping out. And so uh, that's how I've evolved. Uh, but again, I, I, I yield to no one as a bleeding heart. And uh, especially uh, since I'm, uh, I care very much about the, the poverty of the world, and I'm heartened by uh, the way in which uh, the, the Chinese, uh, in particular, the, have have, oh, at least over the last, uh, you know, several decades since the market liberalization of 1978, moved toward capitalism, and I'm hoping that continues in China, even though the recent events have been a little bit 
discouraging. Sure. But hopefully that summarizes me in a in a nutshell. Yeah, I guess that also if anybody wants more information about you, you they could always tune into the Tom Woods uh, Gene Epstein week. This uh, I've been enjoying that. This yeah, it's week. been very nice. Oh, oh, thanks very much. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that, that's that's gone to four four chapters, and uh, yeah. and uh, the the one that's about to come out, I'm, I'm guessing it'll come out before you, this broadcast is yeah. made, uh, is going to be my, my my personal wisdom, which of course uh, I'm, I'm I was very eager to impart to the world. So uh, hopefully, <laughs> I'm very you guys eager will to hear it to too. That one too. Yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, moving on to the next question, um, how so, do you feel about gold, silver, platinum, and cryptocurrency as commodities? As commodities. commodities, yeah. Uh, well, you're asking as commodities. Well, or owning well, then, it, I guess. I take, too. I'm sorry. If I take your question literally, then you know, do I wear gold jewelry and, and do I have gold in my teeth? <laughs> uh, maybe I do have gold in my teeth. I'm not even sure what my dentist does to me. But um, but uh, but I'm not uh, I'm not one of those guys who likes to wear gold rings. Uh, uh. But so but I mean I mean because I'm being flipped, but in a way, but but when you say as commodities. Certainly, as as speculations, uh, they're not. I, I would not say that any of those uh, uh, things, gold, platinum, silver, uh, crypto, even crypto, are really good hedges against inflation. Uh, uh, crypto uh, is uh, a bit too volatile, uh, but uh, and uh, I think the best hedge against inflation is still the stock market, uh, by far. There's no comparison. Um, but uh, in terms of thinking about uh, the future, if you're thinking about, if you're talking about buying those, buying gold or crypto, as uh, uh, as hedges against the future, then I would I would say that it could be prudent to think in terms of if you have money, if you have an investment portfolio, maybe put putting uh, you know five like five to ten percent of your money into crypto or gold, mm -hmm. and and both, or maybe just five percent, certainly. If crypto, uh, if, if crypto, and I, I would say in particular Bitcoin, the front runner, is ever going to become money, then uh, which is in, basically isn't, although it's used as money to some small degree, uh, then it's going to multiply in value a thousandfold. And so, if there's at least like one chance in uh, in a hundred that it could become money, then 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 if it's gonna then if that outcome is gonna bring a thousandfold appreciation, then that's a pretty good bet. But I've only said uh, at, at most ten percent of your portfolio, the other ninety percent I would say should be in conventional instruments like stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, perhaps that answers your question. I'm not sure what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah, that was that's kind of what I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah, what's yeah. up with like why? Is, I don't know. I've noticed for years platinum has been less than gold. What do you know anything about like why that is? Uh, worth less than gold? Yeah, I you know you know I, I don't know. I have to pass on that. I used to follow it closely. Yeah, platinum uh -huh. platinum used to be worth more than uh, gold. It was yeah. a rarer metal, uh -huh. uh, and I'm not sure. It may have something to do with the use of with the maybe waning use of platinum in catalytic converters. Uh -huh. You know. That, that have to do with limiting the air pollution of the gasoline engine mm -hmm. probably has something to do with that. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, and on a related note, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, the legalization of marijuana has uh, has increased across the states. Um, yeah. what, you, what are your feelings on cannabis stocks? Oh, wow. All right. I didn't know you guys were going to give me some investment questions. I, 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 let me just take the high road for a moment, of course, and say that anybody who argues about 
the use of marijuana, the use of cocaine, the use of heroin, the use of alcohol, uh, any of those drugs. Uh, anybody who would argue that you should put somebody in a cage for buying or selling those drugs bears a very heavy burden of proof. Mm -hmm. uh, as Milton Friedman, the, um, the free market economist who really, really did have libertarian passion, once said, the government has no more right to tell me what goes into my mouth as it has to tell me what comes out of my mouth. Uh, I, I, apart from that, uh, when you ask about uh, buying cannabis stocks, probably, probably they're a good bet. Um, you probably, although you, I haven't been following closely what uh, they've been trading at, you know, because anytime you, when you talk about buying a commodity or buying a stock, you have to ask at what price. Uh -huh. Has the future of cannabis already been discounted in terms of the price? Uh, I haven't looked at it closely. Probably not. Uh, and uh, so it's probably a good buy. I, I, I get the sense that at least cannabis, marijuana is being accepted uh, as uh, something that uh, people can recreationally use. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's my best guess. Okay, cool. Okay. Now, uh, let me switch gears uh, for a little bit and ask you mm -hmm. a, a totally different question. Um, would, you say sure. the, would you say the Amish would be a good example of socialists, like a kibbutz, working well within a capitalist society? Well, yes. Uh, I, I, now that you said those last few words, absolutely. I mean, in a way, I would almost put it uh, quite somewhat differently and say that if I, if I had to talk about uh, what what are the virtues of capitalism, and just full stop, the virtues of capitalism, then I would mention the Amish, I would mention the Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn. Uh, I, would, I would point to the fact that, uh, that people can make their own decisions about how they want to lead their lives. Because I balk at the idea that capitalism can only be associated uh, with uh, high-level consumerism, with striving, with, with, with self-interest, uh, with any of those other things, which I think are also legitimate and do some good. But you know, the, the choice of the Amish, the choice of the Hasidic Jews, the Hasidic Jews I know a little bit more about. And what's interesting about the Hasidic Jews is that the very thing that Jews are supposed to want to be, like, you know, uh, lawyers, doctors, uh, uh, get into, become uh, in, in investment uh, gurus, all of that stuff, the Hasidic Jews basically avoid uh, because they're, they're basically sort of small business people, uh, merchants, because they want to stay close to home. That they, that kind of, uh, the professions I, I just mentioned that are more conventional for secular Jews, uh, uh, lead the, the lead people into uh, in, uh, dealing with the Gentile world. And so that's, that's one thing that they don't want to do. And so therefore, they limit their own careers for the sake of the community. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. all of those decisions that a lot of people could make are uh, something up decisions you can make under capitalism. And of course, that's what I was trying to explain to Basco Sankara when I debated him and trying to explain to Richard Wolf as well, which is that if you want alternatives, if you want worker control, worker co-ops, they already exist under capitalism. The, the, the dominant mode of production under capitalism could be worker-owned, worker, worker co-ops. Uh, that's a choice 
that people want to make. It's on, it, it so happens, you mentioned the kibbutz, I, I mentioned the kibbutzim in my debate with Richard Wolff, mm-hmm. that experiment is basically dead uh, in Israel. And Richard thought that that meant that I was putting the whole idea down, and I kept having to remind him that, on the contrary, I'm just mentioning it because it's it's been a tough sell. But uh, but there are worker co-ops, and I encourage you to go for it. On the other hand, Baskar and Richard Richard Wolf want the iron fist of government. Richard Wolf uh, was championing Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn's idea of again bringing about worker ownership from the top down, and uh, he was hoping that Corbyn would prevail in the election of the other day, and mm-hmm. happily Cor- Corbyn went down in flames. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I you, you asked me a leading question, and indeed, uh, that's the whole point. I wouldn't, you know, I would say, of course, obviously, that the that the that there is a, this element of socialism in what the Amish do. I would also go beyond that and say that you could have a real replication of the kind of socialism that is envisioned by Baskar and uh, and by Richard Wolff, uh, in which uh, worker-owned companies band together, they buy from each other, they share communal kitchens, they, they, they decide to pool their funds, and, uh, and each firm doesn't make a profit but just uh, pays for its own capital depreciation. Any arrangement you want, as long as it is voluntary. But... Uh, but what what they are in complete denial about is that it simply has not been a popular idea, and and so that's why they're a menace. These people, because in their desperation, they want the iron fist of government to bring it about, and we've been there and done that. You know, the iron fist of government with socialism has been by and large either performed very poorly, or at the other extreme and more commonly, it's been an absolute horror show. Mm-hmm. That's kind of why we wanted to ask that question. I wanted to hear what you had to yeah. say about that. That was great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, okay, if, sure. if, if I may, uh, so the flip side of that question would be uh, how would you uh, mediate, how, do you, how would you take care or relieve some of the, let's say, negative results from capitalism, uh, whether it's consumerism, the gigantic wealth gap that we have now, um, poor treatment of employees. What would be your solutions yeah. for that? Yeah. Well, to begin, to begin with, you mentioned consumerism, and uh, I wonder if your heart is really in that. Uh, if uh, if somebody likes to consume, then uh, that's uh, that's that person's right uh, to consume. And uh, so I, I don't understand why. Uh, and of course, the people who invade and consumerism usually consume a heck of a lot more than many of the rest of us. Uh, and so it's it's kind of, it's one of the great hypocrisy. The, the, the progressives are just rife with hypocrisy. And uh, I mean, James Cameron, for example, the consumerism is of course being a date against because of uh, of course of the Green New Deal. James Cameron, the film director, spoke about publicly about how we have to do with less. And this is a guy who owns three different homes, each of which is a mansion. <laughs> as somebody, as, as 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 one critic quipped, you know, I'd like to make do with his less. Uh, and so that, that that's a joke to talk about consumerism. But otherwise, as I tried to explain briefly in my debate with uh, with Richard Will, uh, there are well, by and large we need more capitalism, not less. The, the two big things that are shafting workers are government policies in two different areas: the government policy in housing uh, and the government policy in terms of 
uh, of restrictive licensure. Uh, the government policy in housing is most starkly illustrated in areas like New York, Seattle, Los Angeles, uh, uh, San Francisco. Basically, basically, they don't allow anybody to build. They don't understand the basic principle that the only way to cap prices, to put a dampener on the price of housing, be it in terms of buying a home or renting a ho or renting an apartment or renting a home, is to call forth more supply. I should include Portland in that. I visited Portland uh, fairly recently. And yet, they it doesn't occur to them, these people, that, that there might must be some reason why building in these areas has been so limited. Of course, I should mention that, that building from a Almost any end is a good idea. You know, if you build at the high end, it creates more room at the low end. But of course, if you did, uh, what we do find is that where government is most active in these progressive regions of the country that I mentioned, uh, California, principally Portland, New York City, uh, that's where the price of, of housing has been rising so steadily and shafting people who want to move to these areas, making it especially hard for, pe for poor people to move to these areas to get the good jobs that are in these areas. In other areas of the country, we find where there's far less control by government of housing, uh, as in Dallas, as in Houston, as in Austin, Texas, uh, and then uh, we do find that a lot of housing gets built and the price of housing does not soar. So that's, that is, if that, that's just that one reform to sort of turn on those smug progressives in, in the People's uh, the Republic of Palo Alto, where I have some friends who, who, who are proud of the fact that they're sitting on these homes that were several million dollars, the homes that would be worth a small fraction of that in, in, in areas of the South. It doesn't compute with them that they have to allow more building. It doesn't compute with the smart growth people in Portland that if, that if you limit, if, if you forbid uh, more than 10% of the land area in the Portland area for, to have any building at all because they believe in smart growth, then that's the reason why the price of housing is going to soar. It's a simple matter of supply and demand. So that one reform to fight and roll back uh, the way in which the housing market is being strangled, and strangled, by the way, to the satisfaction of many of the building cartels in these cities, uh, to the satisfaction of many of the landlords. Uh, because if you already own a building, it's very nice to see the rents rise. It's very nice for the, for, for the progressives to keep out competition and make it hard to build, uh, because then, then you can raise rents with impunity. And so it's a form of ugly crony capitalism that progressives ought to learn about. The second one, the second major reform, is, of course, the, the explosion in restrictive licensure, the ways in which the guild system uh, that progressives accept uh, uh, makes it hard for people to, to have job mobility. I mean, I, by the way, believe this, that, that the guild system in law should be abolished. If you know, if you've ever been involved in a legal case at all with divorce lawyers or real estate lawyers, you know that if you got a job with that with with their law firm in a matter of six months, you can earn, you can learn the ins and outs of the law that they practice. The, the idea that you have to go to college and then to law school and then pass the bar in order to practice in those fields is ridiculous. A poor a poor woman in the ghetto should be able to do divorce law for her friends after a little bit of training. I mean, and and get paid decently for it. But of course, in other areas, manicurists, uh, uh, undertakers, assistants, in all of those areas, there's been this explosion of, 
of, uh, of restrictive licensure. Do those two things, and you'll th you'll find a remarkable change in the way p the, the bottom half of the population operates. But with that said, I should also say that one of my hobby horses, because I spent my career following the numbers at Barron's, is that is that there really has been uh, a, a, a huge advance uh, by the bottom half in this uh, of the population over the last 20 years, 30 years. Uh, any numbers you look at, uh, if properly uh, properly understood, do show that uh, the idea that all the gains have gone to the top 1% or the top 10%, that's just completely ridiculous. And unfortunately, even certain mainstream e economists don't know how to turn, interpret the numbers correctly. Uh, so again, I split the difference in a way. Uh, I'm not contradicting myself. There has been de definitely been progress, material progress by the broad masses of people over any, any decent long period you want to choose, uh, uh, last 10 years, last 20, yeah. last 30 years. But with that said, we can make far more progress if we just have more capitalism rather than less. So would you disagree with the, the idea that thought that uh, wealth accumulation in this country has, has been concentrated in the top percentage? Well, I, 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 not, I not only disagree with the idea, I think it's ludicrous. The fact of the matter is that, <clears throat> that the, real, <clears throat> the real, if you talk about the real power, then... then <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, then the power is wielded by the consumer. The bottom half of the population accounts for one third of all consumer spending. Uh, the bottom four fifths accounts for nearly two thirds. And by and large, you have Sam Walton and Jeff Bezos and uh, and the rest of them chasing the consumer dollar. Uh, you have those fortunes being made only because <clears throat> they are trying to cut prices. We have basically a price revolution from Walmart. We have a price revolution from Amazon. They're, they are selling to the masses, uh, and that and that and if they can sell to the masses, they're going to go under. That's that's where the fortunes are made. And so uh, I, I don't especially care about exactly how the numbers play out. Uh, the idea that somebody controls wealth, or that Bezos, Jeff Bezos of Amazon controls wealth, he's got a company that that hasn't even made a whole lot in profits over the many years because he keeps plowing back uh, the money he made in, into investing in expanding uh, a, an enterprise that tries to cut prices for poor for people of limited means and succeeds in doing so. And by the way, pressures all the competition into doing the same thing. We basically had over the last. 20 years, literally, in terms of the official numbers, no increase at all in the price of goods. None at all. We've had nominal increases in wages across the board, but no increase in the price of goods. That's partly the Walmart-China effect. That's because uh, the Walmart is essentially buying manufactured goods made by poor Chinese workers who have happily happily climbed out of grinding poverty, one and two dollar a day poverty, real poverty, uh, in order to sell and make goods that working class people buy at Walmart. Uh, and of course, we've also had the Amazon effect. All of those very good things. And so it's a just incredible my myopia to invade against uh, the fortune that Bezos has made uh, and, and to imagine that he's got those many billions stuffed in a mattress. Basically, it's all in Amazon stock and it's all basically will vaporize if Amazon has trouble selling uh, uh, cheap goods to the masses. All right. So let me move on to the next question. Oh, Sean, did you want yeah. to? Yeah. Well, I guess that, that one of our other questions was um, 
like I, I was going to mention, like, uh, but I think you kind of hit on some of it there. Was what does libertarianism yeah. really kind of offer? Like, say, poor people, you know, because you know the the progressives are the ones that are saying that you know that the um, you know they're the ones that are going to help out the poor people, and I just don't yeah. see that happening. I think libertarianism is is more the route. So, can you say something about that? Because I think you kind of did there in a way. Well, sure. I mean, I've been uh, I've been emphasizing. We, 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 I mean, we could go over. I mean, yeah. Literally, a lot of people progress. You know, if I ask the average progressive how 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 are wages determined in the free market, they they basically subscribe to a sort of a Marxist theory. I mean, they basically imagine that that the, that the capitalist has all the power. <clears throat> they, 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 um, and and that's basically Marxism. They, the the capitalist, the cap, the only reason why the capitalists pay more than subsistence wages is because I mean they have vague theories. Well, capitalists are nicer people now, or or well, it's the power of government. The the unions still have some effect, but we do have minimum wages. We do have rules and regs. That's what they think. And uh, and and then if you ask them a simple question, how is it? How is it that? That in the period from 1870 to 1925, a 55-year period where we do have real evidence, how is it that uh, that during that period, when unions were insignificant, when there was basically no legislation, no minimum wage, no interference by government in the way labor markets worked, uh, uh, when on top of that, uh, tens of millions of poor immigrants streamed into the country because we had pretty much an open borders policy until the 20s. Uh, uh, that, of course, would would mean that the wage would be bid down because of all this competition from foreign workers. How is it that uh, that 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 the Marxist playbook did not turn out to be valid? How is it that that over that half a century, the the the, the living standards of the broad masses of people dramatically rose? Well, it dramatically rose because the, the dynamics of a competitive marketplace in a progressive economy bid up. The wage, and so that's what happens if you unleash capitalism. You start interfering in the marketplace, and you're going to have problems. So, I mean, that's that's the reason why an unfettered market does the most good, and that's the reason why unions unions basically forming uh, cartels in particular industries. Obviously, they do lift the wages of the people in that union, but by lifting those wages beyond what the market price would otherwise be, they make it more difficult for other people to enter, that other workers to enter that industry. And on top of that, unions generally often slow down productivity gains, and productivity gains are what fuel wage gains. Uh, I've spoken abstractly about that. I could get into it a little bit more. Uh, it's, uh, but uh, that's just the broad summary. And again, mm-hmm. I insist that I, I be, I'm just as much of a bleeding heart as I ever was. And although I should say that that as a, as a bleeding heart, I always cared about my role in the world, just not, not just, the, just not just caring about my fellow citizens, not just thinking that my caring about uh, the world stops at the water's edge. And there, I would say, the real poor people in, of this world are, of course, not people who live in the U.S. Uh, people, the, the poor people of the world risk their lives to be poor in America. The world risks its life to be poor in America. To them, that's pretty rich. That's wealth. Uh, the, the way a poor person lives in this country is unimaginable wealth to the poor of the world. And so that's why I applaud the Walmart effect. That's the reason why I applaud the turn toward capitalism by many of these 
poor, film formerly poor countries, China especially. All of that, I think, is empirically uh, obvious and staring us all in the face. Mm -hmm. All right, great. What was next on the list, Vern? Okay, next on the list is, uh, and Sean, maybe we can flesh this out a little bit. Uh, do you think a democratic socialist government funded by grassroots efforts would overpower its citizens? That's a question from one of our listeners. Yeah. Uh, sure, okay. Well, well, if, if, if I take literally what, a Democrat, what democratic socialism means, then uh, I, I recommend that that listener uh, listen to my debate with, uh, with Richard Wolf because I, I took Richard literally. Uh, Richard did write a book, Democ Democracy at Work, uh, uh, A Cure for Capitalism. Uh, uh, so he is a democratic socialist, and, uh, and I, uh, I did a deep dive and quoted copiously from his book, and I explained that, uh, that even if he has uh, explained it on two levels. That 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 even if he imagines that uh, that democracy is going to work, you know that fifty one percent of the people are really going to determine the outcomes in this in that society. What he's calling for, uh, and what democratic socialism basically does call for, is is essentially uh, government agencies democratically run that allocate finance. Uh, you know, we have we have companies that will need to borrow money in different ways. We have enterprises that will need to borrow money. We have we have startups. We have you know lots of need for financing. Obviously, the democratic socialists recognize that they're not going to abolish money. That that was a crazy idea. None of them accept that anymore. They do want markets. And secondly, they talked about Richard talked about the allocation of labor as well. That people lose jobs. People come into the workplace. Decisions have to be made about how labor is allocated. So if you're going to politicize both of those things, labor and finance, and you can leave it to 51% of the population, then uh, as many have asked, well, does that mean, does that mean that the Soho Forum, my enterprise, my nonprofit, but needs money, it's nonprofit or profit, I need money to, to run the enterprise, does that mean that I'm going to get financing if and only if a majority of workers gives me the money, if and only if. Does that mean that Muslim mosques or scarves or prayer books will only be financed if and only if a 51% of the people or a majority says yes? Or, or do we understand, or birth control devices, or pick whatever you want. It's going to be through just on the basis of the democratic majority as to how money is, is, is allocated and how labor is allocated? Or do we accept free markets? So that alone really is the killer. I mean, Jacobin Magazine, uh, Richard Wolf's books, uh, Reason Magazine, the, the podcast that you guys run, it needs financing. Uh, and uh, and are, you, uh, are, are you guys going to actually decide that, that you want to live in a world in which a majority of workers is going to... Is going to tell you what you can and can't do or are you just going to say I'm going to bring out birth control I'm going to, I'm going to finance mosques the, the majority of the workers be damned you know if 
if people want to buy what I'm what I'm selling, then let me just do it. Well, that's of course capitalism. But democratic socialism is clearly going to mean that freedom is going to be strangled. I, I cited the example of President Obama because he's like he's the most beloved guy. President Obama reigned a, a war on journalists. The the New York, New York Times journalist James Risen called him the scourge of independent journalists. Uh, the left wing. Uh, 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 journalist um, Glenn Greenwald uh, talked about how he used the Espionage Act of 1918 to prosecute journalists he didn't like. If you give Obama power o over the allocation of labor and over the allocation of capital, he can strangle these dissidents at the source. Uh, so that would be the problem under the under democratic socialism. But uh, as I said as well, uh, the idea that uh, that 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 it really will be a democracy. The idea that there are enough hours in the day for for us to meet and deliberate over the thousands of decisions that happen all the time in a market economy. That's absurd. What really will happen is that a bunch of elites are going to have pretty much have the power because they're the ones that will have the time, and that power, of course, is going to inevitably be abused. Now, I'm, there, there I'm only speaking of just simple freedom, freedom to bring out birth control devices to build to build Muslim mosques to do any of those things uh, then I spoke about prosperity uh, prosperity is basically fueled by innovation uh, and uh, that's maybe a long lesson a lot of people don't even quite understand that it all depends on innovating and uh, and then how what kind of are all of the innovative projects that people want to bring out going to be decided on by these politically uh, determined democratic majorities or by elites, uh, then, you know, Steve Jobs w would have had to go to charm school, which he was never going to do. And, mm -hmm. and if he was proposing a smartphone that's going to challenge the, the, the merchants and industries that sell flashlights and other devices and, and, and GPS navigators and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and cameras, uh, that product would have been stifled at the source. So again, it's a disastrous idea. The, the conventional democratic socialism, but if you, but if the impulse on the part of democratic socialists is to work in a democratically run workplace, then I say go for it, do it. Recognize, however, that it doesn't always work out so well. That 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 uh, that 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 if you, I, I, I belong to a co-op, I, I, I belong to, I was lived in another co-op before moving to this one, and every once in a while, in fact, not infrequently, you think it would be a much more peaceful place if it was just simply run by a landlord, because there's so many squabbles and crazinesses that go on when everything is put to a vote. So. That's my message. It's a hopeless idea. I used to believe in it myself. It will stifle prosperity. It will stifle freedom. Great. Um, you know, that ties into my, my next question, actually, if, if sure. I may jump, jump right in. Sure. Um, my question would be, so I think this country can benefit greatly from having diversity when it comes to political ideologies. Um, so, you know, so here we are, progressives, libertarians, talking about this. Um, what would you suggest or what would you recommend, whether it's topics, whether wh whatever it may be, to encourage a conversation to open to, an open discussion between libertarians and progressives and anybody else in between to try to hash out change uh, for this country, which we need? 
Okay, I mean, I, I, the way you put it, uh, diversity, I, I think what you really meant when you talk about diversity of political ideologies, I mean, uh, you know, that doesn't, uh, hopefully, obviously, you didn't mean you want a, you want a fair representation of Nazis uh, or fascists <laughs> or, uh, and, or Bolsheviks. Uh, uh, presumably, uh, you want uh, people who have decent values yeah, uh, to yeah. begin with. Care about prosperity and freedom, as I do. And, uh, uh, and so, and you want to, obviously, uh, I think it's wonderful, you, one of you, uh, I'm, I'm actually not even clear, by the way, from whose voice is who, I, I probably, the uh, Bernie Sanders asked me that question. Yeah, Bernie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know which, I, I don't know which is which, which of you guys, I, I sort of suspect a little bit from the way the question is asked. But yeah, yeah. Obviously, I, I think what you, what you guys are doing sounds great, that, that you're a progressive and libertarian who are banded together, and so you guys sound like a, a step, a real step in the right direction. Uh, I, uh, I do. I, I've been speaking rather heatedly. I guess I'm in a different mood. Um, the, the things. So forgive me for speaking heatedly. I, 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 I want to speak with respect, as I, as I did with Richard Wolf. I, I got a little bit heated with Vasquez and Cara. So indeed, <laughs> uh, I probably have to learn, uh, certainly, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to modulate my voice and to understand that uh, that that if I'm talking to a progressive, we won't. We both want the same things, but I yep. might disagree with that progressive about how to achieve those things. And of course, my Soho Forum is part of what I do. Um, and uh, and uh, my Soho Forum is in, at, oftentimes <clears throat> pits a progressive against a libertarian um, or free market person on a particular issue. Um, I, I Obviously, I do believe that the, uh, that the progressive agenda, once you explore it, actually uh, uh, does more harm than good. It does not achieve the ends uh, that it pursues. Uh, it, uh, uh, it, uh, it, it's, it's a troubled uh, series of ideas, uh, but there's nothing but, uh, but, but and, and, I, and I, I do, because I'm concerned when I talk to my progressive friends, of whom I have many, that... That I, I that I try to make it clear to them that if they change their minds, that doesn't mean that they're disavowing their own identities. Hopefully, their philosophy and their good intentions are mm -hmm. good. But I I do I do as I say do find that I, I I guess I have to return to to what I will honestly say that 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 there's a strong element of hypocrisy among progressives. They 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 are preaching. Uh, they. They do. They, they, they are preaching about the use of, uh, you know, the, the Green New Deal, uh, it, whether or not they agree with the Green New Deal. They're, they're, they're preaching about greenhouse gases, but none of them. They're still flying around the country. They're still leaving the immense carbon footprints, uh, and uh, and they think that's fine. They don't. They don't. They, they, as I put it to them, if I were if I were a vegetarian who believed. That is, if that's wrong to kill and eat animals, that and yet if I ate, if I thought it was wrong, but I but I ate animals anyway, I think somebody would call me a hypocrite. But if you think that, so therefore, every individual can obviously make his contribution. But but uh, you know, James Cameron lives in three homes and lectures us about making do with less. I have a friend who actually is proud of the fact that he, that he has a home in Palo Alto worth $4 million. And I, and I told him, it's just 
slightly grotesque. That I've seen that home. It would be worth <laughs> maybe a few hundred thousand in taxes. And the only reason why, and you're concerned about the poor, and you don't recognize that you that your capital gain in that home is part of the problem, because you have all these rules and regs that make it impossible to build, and make, by making it impossible to expand the housing supply, uh, so as to bring down the value of all those homes. So indeed, uh, I do think that there is an element of hypocrisy in, in progressives, but uh, certainly you guys have let me unleash a little bit and be harsh. But if I were talking to a progressive, I would be a little bit more uh, circumspect. But uh, yeah, let's have a dialogue, and that's why that's why I have a slow forum. I guess that's the reason why you guys have your podcast. Yeah. And yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, bring about um, at least let people know that there are more there are more than more parties than just Democrats and Republicans. There are different ways of looking at the issues. Uh, well, and, and, and let people know. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I guess I should criticize my own kind. I, I did have a debate uh, on uh, with with uh, uh, Yaron Brook is his guy's name. Very smart guy, and lots of ways I agree with him about a lot of things on economics. But he's he's the head of one of the Ayn Rand groups, and uh, and he preaches the virtue of selfishness. You know, Ayn Rand's idea, uh-huh. virtue of selfishness. And uh, and I I uh, I. I did win that debate. I, I turned the Oxford, according to Oxford style rules. Is that on I YouTube? I, I think there is a ten. There's, certainly, it's true that libertarians and free market types tend to attract a disproportionate number of people who who like the idea of the virtue of selfishness, who who aren't, who don't have such social consciences as people like I have. And so that, uh, but but I, I I mean, this is the finding, by the way, of Jonathan Haidt. I guess is or height. I forget how Jonathan pronounces his name, uh, his last name. Uh, that uh, that that libertarians tend to be uh, they're, they're not such bleeding hearts as a group, and uh, and I, I can I, I can imagine that that's the case. And I think it's very very unfortunate, uh, and uh, it's especially unfortunate because I think that bleeding hearts such as myself should be especially attracted. To libertarianism. Yeah, you know, I agree. Because libertarianism is, is uh, liber- libertarians attract uh, perhaps an unusual number of misanthropic people, you know, hermits, people who just want to be by themselves, who hate others, you know, and that's their right, that's their privilege. Uh, uh, but uh, but I'm but obviously I think that, uh, that the, a real sense of community is fostered uh, by libertarianism uh, as well, and so I think all of those things are important, and I would certainly agree. That my own kind can be legitimately criticized, but as people, mm-hmm. but uh, as a group. But I do think that that when you criticize the particular people, but you're conf- you're confusing the issue because you're you're not really criticizing libertarianism when you do that. Because the, because uh, again, any kind uh, any kind of libertarianism is very good news for poor people. Yeah. Okay. We had a good follow-up question for that one. Like, what would be a good way for um, the Libertarian Party or Libertarians in general to reach out to, like, uh, like say poor people or handicapped people? Because you know, me as a blind person, you know, a lot of people ask me, yeah. like, how can you be a Libertarian? Libertarians want to take away all your social stuff. And I said, well, you you're not blind, so you don't really know what it's like because dealing with the Social Security and different things like that, dealing with the state. Is not easy or fun whatsoever, mm-hmm. and sometimes yeah. it's sometimes it's that double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. So, like, what yeah. would you say? Like, it, way to talk to them or or people of color. You know, get more Latinos and uh, 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 African Americans and Asians into, into the group, along with handicaps and like or, those those other people. And, and also members of the LGBTQ community. Yeah. 
Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of a well, broad one. Well, the, let, me, let me latch on the Asians, because the Asians are getting shafted, as you know, most recently, by, you know, yeah. the, the government is obviously stirring up all kinds of, you know, ethnic hatreds uh, by, by insisting that, you know, more, more African-Americans have to go to Harvard, and, and, then, and then Harvard comes out, you know, the great liberal progressive Harvard comes out and says that the reason why, that they're not prejudiced against Asians, uh, if you recall the case that the Asian group brought against Harvard yeah. for, uh, for not letting enough of them in who have real qualifications, Harvard, mm-hmm. Harvard came, literally came back, as you guys may recall, and, and said in its defense in the legal case that, that they also evaluate their applicants on the basis of personality, and the Asians have bad personalities. That's what, the, that's what, that, that's what the, all this progressivism caused, you know, an insult against people who were Asian. And and that, that that that's the great progressive triumph to pit Asians against blacks and then insult insult Asians on the part of, of the progressive Harvard that wants to defend its point of view. Uh, and so the, the Asians probably are already uh, gravitating would would want to gravitate toward libertarianism if that's if that's the way the state is going to try to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. With respect to others, uh, certainly uh, there's a good book by uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, very good uh, uh, African American writers. Um, I hesitate, you know, as a white person, I'm a Jewish person, but still it's kind of a difficult difficult to talk to people uh, and for me to presume to say, well, I understand what it means to be black and all the rest of it. But but certainly uh, the, uh, the 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 books by people like Jason Riley, a book called Please Stop Stop Helping Us. That, that the state really is of no help to black people today, or indeed, I just look the whole history of, of of Jim Crow in the South was government regulation, government rules uh, uh, against black people. Uh, the an understanding then on the part of, of blacks that capitalism punishes bigots. Uh, that it punishes bigots because if because if you're going to be bigoted in the way you hire or bigoted in terms of, of the of, of the customers you patronize, then you're going to limit your opportunities to to cope in the marketplace, and 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 the non-bigoted companies are going to compete with you all the more. Uh, the I, I will say, I mean, you 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 asked me a, a question on sort of a broad uh, a broad canvas. Uh, I will say that. That if we're going to make a transition, or think in terms of making a transition to a, a free market society in which the welfare state is rolled back, then it has to be done slowly. I don't think you can't just suddenly pull the plug on people who are dependent on, on government largesse. Especially, you can't pull the plug on old people. Uh, I'm uh, old people who are. Uh, you, you can't just suddenly tell somebody who's 75 years old. That's actually my age, by the mm-hmm. way. Uh, uh, you can't suddenly tell them that, well, you know, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, as much as it preys on you, it actually does. Medicare is a bizarre, crazy system that 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 the elderly think is a good plan, but but uh, but what really happens to the elderly is that is that the uh, physicians who run Medicare, who basically run it, uh, invent all kinds of maladies for these people and kill them by imposing on them operations that they really don't need. Uh, that's really what the bureaucratic Medicare system. Does to them, but what I'm what I'm trying to say, however, is that is that we do need to phase in a real 
free market system in medical care that truly serves people before we start thinking in terms of rolling back the ways in which the welfare state has made people dependent on uh, on, on, on such things. And I've actually uh, somewhat critical of the new, uh, from what I've heard, uh, uh, from the new uh, guy who a lot of people are backing as the, as a libertarian candidate for president, Jacob Hornberger, because I think he doesn't understand what Ron Paul, the libertarian candidate, had said. We need we need a decade or so to encourage what's already beginning to happen, by the way, I happen to know since I follow it closely, already beginning to happen in terms of medical care, an attempt to, to actually provide free market medical care because the, the deductibles are getting to be so high that, that you, if you encourage a free market medical care, then, then actually medical care can be provided for, for an affordable price. But I, I, I'm, I'm speaking generally about the transition, but I will, I will uh, uh, actually try, finish by answering the final question, which is what do you do in a free market? Well, I think if we really had a free market, uh, then then we'd have a growth of 7% a year. We, we'd be doubling incomes every 10 years. Uh, that's, but that's what 7% a year does. We, we'd providing, be providing for virtually everyone. On the other hand, there are always people who, who, through no fault of their own, can't always take care of themselves. I, I do think that if you look at the history of compassion in this society, if you look at the fact that even given the, 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 the dominance of, 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 the, uh, of the government in, uh, in, in the market, in, in social welfare, we still have $200 billion a year in philanthropy, much of it going to hospitals, uh, much of it going to research, to medical care. Uh, then I, I do think that there's more than enough compassion uh, to take care of the small group of people who have difficulty taking care of themselves. So I probably mourned it on, hopefully gave at least a few answers to yeah, you. Yeah, that was but great. I, I particularly like the part about phasing it in because that's what a lot of yeah. people say to me is like they, they act yeah. like if we vote for a libertarian that some we're just going to yank the rug out from underneath them. And, well, you know, well, again, again, if yeah, you so, yeah, to that's, Ron, yeah. Ron Paul, I mean, maybe Ron Paul never got a chance to bring that message across, but just most recently he was interviewed by, by Tom Woods, and that's specifically he said otherwise. You know, uh -huh. as you know, Ron Paul was an obstetrician, a medical, uh -huh, yeah. is a medical doctor. So, of course, he didn't say that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, of course, you, I mean, it is an that's interesting great. question. Do you, go to, do you go cold turkey with certain changes? Do you go free <laughs> market? Do you phase in? Certainly the welfare state. Uh, that's that's a much more difficult. When you you can, just for starters again, you can't you can't pull the plug on on people over seventy. Uh, uh -huh. So that's just ridiculous to think in those terms that you mm -hmm. can. It's inhumane to do so, and so the phasing issue is a very important one, and of course a very complicated one. Uh, it it requires some thought. So you 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 because uh, I know Dave Smith is a big supporter of of Hornberger. Uh, so oh yes yeah. yeah. So you guys well, I like. Go ahead, yes. No, so like you guys discussed that thing that you were talking about about him. I mentioned. I actually mentioned it to, to mention my concern to Tom Woods. I don't know. I haven't met. Uh, interesting thing we could talk about Jacob Hornberger, and maybe he'll hear this. But I, I did hear him. I it wasn't uh, it wasn't interviewed with Dave. So I did hear him at one point say that oh the the, the senior citizens are not going to go for me at all since since I'm against. I think that was on Scott Horton. Chair. That's what he said. And then uh, and, uh, I know I, I, I didn't listen to the entire uh, interview he had with Dave Smith, but I, 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 I didn't hear him mention that. And uh, I, I mentioned to Tom Woods and Tom uh, off the record actually agreed with me. 
that he should, uh, you know, should pay a visit to Ron Paul and ask him questions like that uh, to because uh -huh. I guess because he made this unfortunate comment that he's going to scare the hell out of baby boomers, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the aging baby boomers uh -huh. by by essentially implying that he's going to pull the plug entirely uh -huh. on. Uh, on on uh, on medical on medical care and, mm -hmm. and on elder care, uh, and I, I by the way I, I think that the whole debate about about uh, Medicare for all and whether it's affordable just misses the uh, the obvious point that me that Medicare really to some great degree preys on preys on uh, on uh, abuses uh, those people who think it's a good deal. They don't understand all the crazy motivations that the medical care system then is warped into providing. I mean, you you have all kinds of major invasive procedures that doctors are prescribing for people who are 85 years old uh, to, to prevent to prevent certain maladies from doing them in 30 years from now. Just insane ideas because because of all these third department payments and they convince old people to undergo these operations uh, because uh, because it costs next to nothing and uh, and they convince them that they're necessary and just really crazy uh, activities that you would not have in a free market. But, but with that said, obviously, poor people are dependent on the subsidy. They plan their life. People, the older, older people are, they plan their life around it. And so you have to take those, those things into account. That's great. I, I, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear, hear hear that kind of stuff because, you know, a lot of you know a lot of the libertarian shows they don't get to talk about that stuff. And since I'm blind, I wanted to bring that out that you know there are yeah. blind libertarians and people who, who yeah, you know who who are in the system that don't don't really like it, all that much. And, don't really you know, like it. Yeah. Don't. I mean, I guess we. I'd be. Of course, I'd be interested to to hear about your. Uh, situation you're blind and do you you do you do this and what what else do, i'm a music you know, teacher yeah, I, what? i'm a music teacher so i, I teach music, i teach kids music, music. Teacher, yeah uh-huh oh i see yeah i teach guitar uh -huh. piano and uh you know sometimes drums well of course you've heard of ray charles who yeah uh, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so very accomplished very accomplished musician and, yeah uh, and uh, even though he was blind, yeah, I do, I do, I do, uh, I do put out a lot of like uh, uh, protest music and stuff, you know, like uh, like Bob Dylan style, that kind of stuff. But I'm I'm classically wow. trained, so that's kind of like you know that's my goal. I want to be a you know I want to be a musician, you know uh, that. But you know it's it's nice to help out the community and help out kids play music and that kind of stuff. You know, it's I it's see. a fun job as long as the kids practice. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, what kind of music do you listen to? Oh, uh, any and all. I, I, I actually uh, I, I go to concerts. I go to classical music concerts at Carnegie Hall. Uh, nice. But uh, actually, I, I, I've been so inundated with listening to podcasts uh, that uh, I, I've been falling down. I I love music, uh, but uh, I, I, of course I also go to Broadway musicals. So uh -huh. I'm pretty much a middle brow, upper brow, and uh, I love a lot of Bob Dylan songs. I'm pretty eclectic. Yeah. But, uh, I haven't. I I've been at, at telling myself I don't seem to have quite enough time to listen to music, even though of course you get great reception on your uh, on, on on your smartphone. Yeah. And uh, so uh, that's unfortunate in my case. Yeah. I. I uh... I listen to a little bit of everything, you know, I, you know, I'm classically trained and, but I, I found the folk, uh, folk genre was so fun because you could talk about the government and things like that. And it was, you know, just open to that kind of stuff. And I, I found there wasn't, you know, there's a lot of people talk about freedom, but I didn't hear a lot of libertarian, uh, ideas in the music. So I wanted to put that uh, out there. 
Oh, that, well, that's great. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I, I had a hobby uh, about um, uh, compiling a list. It's something I was doing a few years. Compiling a list of songs that are legitimately uh, talk about freedom, that have something to say. You know, of course, there's the famous, freedom is just another word for nothing yeah, left yeah. to lose, of course, from Bobby McKee. You know, the uh -huh. where, the, where the lyrics actually say something. Yeah. Tribes of freedom, tribes of freedom flashing. Is that the Dylan... Uh, uh, lyric, I forget. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that tune right offhand, but yeah. Oh, okay. I want to take a moment to tell you about my new album called Four Others, Volume One. It's an album I did for charities. It has uh, four songs on it. Each song has a different charity that it benefits. Um, Linda Hand benefits Children's Hospital. Um, much Braver Than I benefits the Fallen Firefighter Foundation. Over There benefits the Wounded Warriors Project. And It's Time benefits the Sea Shepherds. So I thought this was a fun way for people to give to a charity that they believe in without spending a dime. All you have to do is look it up on whatever source you stream music on and listen to it. The more you listen, the more you give. Uh, and it'd be nice if while you were there, you checked out some of my other albums. But, you know, like I said, you know, this is a fun way to give to charity uh, without spending any money and, uh, you know, to help support uh, people without getting government involved. And uh, here's our contact information. Hey, guys, this is Bernie S. All right, so there's a couple ways to get a hold of us. First, on Twitter, you can reach us through at Osborne. On Facebook, you can just through This Might Make You Mad, and that's uh, with each word spelled out separately. And on Instagram, that's actually uh, This Might Make You Mad, but with dashes in between. And also, you can reach us at pnlpodcast at gmail.com. And, and of course, you can always, always listen to us on Spotify, Google, Apple, um, and also through Amazon. Stitcher. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. If we may, I'd like to talk more about, um, you mentioned briefly race and uh, libertarianism stance on race. Um, oh, so so yeah. one of the things that, um, you know, when I when Sean and I talk um, or in debate, one of the things that always run, that I always run up to when it comes to libertarianism and its take on ethnicity and race and civil rights is that a lot of the changes that essentially pushed and propelled this society forward when it comes to acceptance and tolerance involve the federal uh, government directly when we talk about civil rights, uh, whether it's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, National yeah, Guard, yeah. making sure that people yeah. went to schools, um, that, that kind of stuff. So yeah, how, how yeah, would a libertarian yeah. government ensure or protect um, yeah. its citizens of different ethnicities and races? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you, of course, you, you you raise an interesting question. Historically, I, I I do I do think that I do think that Jason Riley is correct in saying that uh, the government policies these days, affirmative action, which which uh, the whole idea of uh, of of uh, disparate outcomes, I mean, that's just perverse, and uh, it uh, you know it it, it misses it, it's basically racist and it's basically not good. For poor people, uh, black people, or whites, or Asians, it's causing just absolute lunacy. Uh, and uh, so, I think that government's role now is clearly deleterious. But, but I, uh, but I grant your point that that historically uh, uh, there was something going on. I, I will. I, I wanted. I guess I want to put one thing in context that that if you actually look 
at the economic progress of black people uh, and uh, where there's data from the 19, mid-1940s up through the mid-60s before, before civil rights and great society and other things became a big deal. For that 20-year period, uh, the progress of blacks was about as great, if not greater, and not faster than it was subsequently. And so I think that it's important uh, for progressives to understand that if given a chance in a, in a market economy, race, racism and bigotry are simply bad for business. That's not that, always the case, and so, was it, no, That, that wouldn't always be the case if, let's say, if we let all states uh, decide... Um, Precisely. Yeah, yeah. That's what for all states. Yeah. No, no. That's my point. In other words, what I'm saying is that is that what we lose sight of is that is that essentially uh, the 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 oppression of blacks in the South, in particular, was government, the, the government Jim Crow laws. It wasn't just that. It was probably even more, especially the lawlessness of government. The fact that if the Ku Klux Klan wanted to lynch you, or if they wanted to burn your store, or do whatever they wanted to you, the local authority. Would would look the other way. They're ba they're basically backing the government is basically backing violence against blacks through the Ku Klux Klan. And so that 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 it does, by the way, cause an interesting dilemma because you you essentially had again again if, if if there had not been any of these any of these laws, the the very iron fist of government enforcing racism, then it would have been a different story. However, that does create an interesting dilemma because what what is interesting is this that. That strictly speaking, if you uh, if you support the Constitution, as to some degree is a libertarian, I, I sort of like the Constitution since it's 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 a, it's a broad outline, a pretty libertarian document. Uh, it does say that uh, that specifically that it limits the power of government and it sort of allows the states to do what they want. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I do think that that the political intervention. To, to to abolish uh, all of these Jim Crow laws, the fe the federal government's intervention to abolish the Jim Crow laws was essentially a very good thing, obviously. Yes. Uh, and so that's true. But but the point is, at least I want to mention, at least I want to stress that this wasn't intervening in the market. This wasn't intervening in business. This was essentially a, 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 a one one political entity uh, rolling back. The, the racist practices of another political entity, and so neither of which entity a libertarian has any liking for. I mean, obviously, there should be no laws on the books that discriminate against uh, against uh, minorities. Right. Of course, that's that's what a libertarian believes. But uh, but uh, but apart from that, I, I mean, I, when you talk about the National Guard and the, and and the integration of the schools, uh, busing, all of that, I I think that that probably was not a very uh, productive thing. The idea, the, 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 the fetish, the, the original fetish that's impossible and the basically sort of quasi-racist idea that, uh, that, that it's impossible, that, that segregation is necessarily, uh, uh, necessarily racist, uh, is, uh, is a sort of a racist idea. It basically implies that if, it, that if a school is all black, it's got to be inferior. And, implying then that black people are inferior. I mean, James, J John McWhorter, by the way, was also a black guy who wrote a very good book called Winning the Race. I, you, you guys have mentioned race a few times, and, and I think that books that you guys should read, if you haven't, John McWhorter's book about 10 years ago uh, called Winning the Race. 
Oh, no, excuse me. It was, yeah, it was called Winning the Race, right. Uh, he wrote another one called Losing the Race, but Winning the Race was the next one. But um, John McWhorter said, you know, of what group has it ever been implied, ever been said, what other group has it ever been said that they can't do without, you know, the black people can't do, be, can't do without having blacks, having whites in their neighborhood, whites in their schools? Did, does anybody, did anybody ever say that about the Jews, for example, or about the Chinese? That, that if it's a predominantly Jewish school, then they, they need some Gentiles, that they need to integrate it. And then, of course, all the forced busing was a little crazy. So I think that went wrong. Uh, but, but again, I, I, I do think that moving forward, uh, the idea of, of affirmative action, the idea that any time any organization uh, does, you know, because the joke, of course, is sports, you know, the Jewish representation in baseball and in basketball is, of course, very, very much below. Mm -hmm. we're, we're only about one and a half percent of the population, but, but we're not even one and a half percent of all the basketball players. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obviously absurd. And Thomas Sowell, who's another person you, uh, who, who's worth reading, uh, just comes up with just an incredible number of examples of all of the disproportionate representation uh, that you find in so many fields, as he put, as he put it at one point, you, you don't even you don't even find equal outcomes among siblings or among twins. You know, how can you expect equal outcomes uh, from uh, from different racial and ethnic groups? And obviously, the the Chinese uh, are clearly just knocking it out of the park. Uh, they, they they work very hard. I mean, the the Chinese, the Japanese, the Jews, they just tend to be very industrious people, and they start businesses and uh, and they get somewhere. And and so. Certainly, uh, there was a, a, a father divine in, 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 in uh, the, the Malcolm X. Uh, there are a lot of black figures who recognize what, the, the point that Thomas Sowell made, which is that the groups that become most active in politics, historically, the, the ethnic group they did was the Irish. The Irish really dominated local politics in so many, in Boston and in New York. And yet, uh, the groups that avoided politics were the ones that prospered. The idea that politics is the route to, uh, to, to material well-being and prosperity is really a Faustian bargain. And, uh, and there are blacks who understood that, and blacks who understood that what the Chinese and the Jews did was avoid politics, and they simply started businesses, and they employed each other, and they prospered that way. And so, again, I think that the libertarian sort of free market message, especially today, it is, is of great importance, uh, especially to African Americans. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. I recommend Jason Riley, Thomas Sowell, and John McWhorter. And uh, who's the other guy uh, who's also very good, but um, his name will come to me in a moment. Uh, I have it. He does a podcast, and uh, um, what's the guy's name? Uh, um, um, oh, uh, yeah, Glenn. Uh, um, yeah, Glenn Lowry. Glenn Lowry is. I don't a, think I've heard a, his uh, podcast. Yeah, he's got a very good podcast. I know called Blocking Heads, and that's with Glenn Lowry. Yeah. Uh -huh. So a lot of a lot of there are a lot of very articulate black spokespeople who who bring this message and who are really just brilliant in so much of their research. And and I will say, of course, be, being African American means that it's difficult to accuse them of being racist. Although, of course, they could be called you know self-hating blacks. You could always get back at them. Uh, but uh, but but it does help that they have that courage uh, to point 
such things out. Jason Riley, in particular, by the way, in his book, Please, Please Stop Helping Us, uh, talks about how he's been racially profiled all his life. He's a dark-skinned black, and but but then he mentions that that when he was in, he, he, he went to the University of Buffalo, uh, or undergraduate school, he lived off campus the last three years, and he would drive to work, and he, get, and he constantly got stopped by the cops, by the, by the highway cops. They see a young black guy driving a car, and they tend to stop him. And he, and he started to use securities routes to get to school in order to avoid the cops. But then he said also that he was working in a convenience store in order to pay his bills, uh, working his way through college, and, and, uh, and there was pilferage in the store, and, and he found that the person, the people most likely to be stealing something were piece of people who looked like him. He said, so I started racially profiling people who looked like me, because I, I did have to focus on who's the most likely person, who do I keep my eye on? And so, again, he, he's rather uh, uh, he's, he's rather direct in terms of pointing out that racial profiling, at least racial profiling in a superficial sense, you know, if you're not stealing anything, what's he going to do to you? Is he really undermining your individuality can by I, simply keeping an eye on you? So I, again, all of those things are, are talked about by blacks, and I and I wish that progressives would read these people. If I, if I may, I'd like to ask you about that example. I think that's a great example. Um, so he saw that he found himself uh, racially profiling, profiling people. people. People who look like him. Exactly. Yes, he put it Riley. Mm -hmm. People, he said, I started racially profile guys who look like me. You so, know? and so uh, how do yeah. we how do we stop that? How do we prevent that from happening? In his case, it was essentially harmless. I mean, he was getting pulled over, maybe had some sort of uh, rap sheet, or he was known to the police. But in other cases, it ends up being people getting arrested unfairly. In other cases, it means people getting killed by uh, by state employees, by police officers. Oh yeah. So how would a libertarian government um, oh, well. get rid of that? <laughs> well, Is it a free yeah, market? okay. Look, I mean, you're getting it. I mean, certainly, as you probably know, I mean, most you know, you know, you guys know Dave Smith and others. You know, they mm. really hate the cops. Most most libertarians more than agree with you. I mean, they do. I mean, I guess I guess they. I, I don't even know what their solution is. I I I mean, I, I I've heard. You know, there's huge debates about what cops actually do. Obviously, that the the solutions are rather difficult. You know, they, as Richard Epstein puts it, I don't know if you know him. He's yeah. kind of a at least he's a classical liberal. He said, you know, so what's the what's the solution? Well, we'll hire a lot of blacks for the police force. Well, we've already done that. What what else is the solution? Well, make make a black person uh, make him the chief of police. Well, we've already done that. You know, so Ken, it's it's a very difficult problem. I don't know. Of course, obviously, Dave Smith would say, well, abolish the whole damn police force, the government-run police force, uh, because they're not really serving our needs. And that, that's what—that's the ANCAP solution. Uh, yeah. So, indeed, I, 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 don't, I don't know that progressives have any real solution to that problem either. No, or, it's incredibly or as Richard complex. Epstein said, the solutions that progressives can think up are, are hire more blacks on the police force and make a black person the chief of police. More, basically, that's already been tried. The way I see it is, yeah, the the less laws that there are, the the less reason oh, yeah. the cops have to, to oh, pull yeah. somebody over. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, sure. that's the way I mean, I've always seen the, it. The guy who was choked to death. Uh, yeah, for selling, selling gray cigarettes. You know, mm -hmm. and yeah. then, obviously, black. The, the best thing we can, the, the big things we best and big things we can do for black people, and among the things I've mentioned, which is roll back the crazy real estate laws that, that drive up the Red price line. of housing, yeah. but also, also obviously abolish the drug laws since yeah. so many yeah. black people are in prison for nonviolent crimes yeah. having to do with drugs. So that would help as well. Yeah. And so 
far fewer crimes that they can be committed can, that they commit. I, I of course was interested. I, I'm uh, I'm fascinated by this topic as well. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, the stop and frisk that Bloomberg was oh, yeah. in New yeah. York City uh, was it was it, you know that's the one thing De Blasio good thing De Blasio did. Yeah. Insurgently, uh, when the stop and frisk, frisk was abandoned, uh, the crime rate in New York City continued to decline, and therefore it's very very hard to argue that stop and frisk made a whole lot of difference. Yeah. And so uh, and that's. Uh, I think that was an interesting point, but yeah. uh, there, there are no good solutions to that problem. But I mean, certainly the idea of you know, racially profiling somebody as Jason Riley did is simply that he that he's keeping his eye on you, or if he sees uh, Jason Riley also had the line that that if he if he sees some some young black teenagers who look a little swaggering coming his way, he'll cross the street too. Middle class black people across the street. He's not uh, I, I would do that if it were white teenagers too. <laughs> but, but, but I'm sorry, I didn't know. What, I didn't hear what you said. Oh, but my sorry. only point is that obviously, yeah, you just tell the cops if you're going to racially profile a black person, that doesn't mean you that you have to violate that black person's rights. And certainly, the stop and frisk was violating rights. And and then indeed, obviously, stopping stopping a young black person as Jason Riley was stopped uh, when he's driving uh, to college, uh, that was obviously a bad thing. So there are no good solutions, but certainly it's it's a, it's an important uh, problem that is uh, that is worth uh, worth t talking about. Right, I, I agree, and I think in the end, my, my analysis would be that whether the government has put in laws that perpetuate racism or laws to try to get rid of racism, I think the absence of laws through libertarianism or libertarian government would, I think, just make the problem worse. The absence of laws? Or, well, or, the, mean, what, or getting what, rid what of laws. What laws are you talking about? The absence of what? The absence of a drug law? Or we, we, have, we have a quarter of a million people in prison because of the drug laws. I want, to yep. I want the absence of no, drug no, laws. I'm talking about punishing would that, racism. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't that I, be a good thing? I, I agree, that, that, but I'm that, talking that, about... That, that causes a lot of violence. We, I agree. We, we, we had I agree. So, so that's the absence of laws, right? No, but I'm talking so, about... So that's a good start, isn't or I'm it? Yeah, absence indeed. Of Absolutely, I agree with that. What I'm saying is okay. being able yeah. to punish, uh, um, punish people or businesses or anybody or governments or government agencies, anybody that works for the government that uh, puts into practice or does anything, um, whether it's racially profiling, um, discriminating against people that may be of a different gender or different sexual orientation. Well, well, let me try to point something out to you. You, you, you touch on an interesting question, indeed, as a progressive. Let me just, I, I, I take it you do understand. I mean, I mean actually, let, let me ask you the easy question. The, 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 the Christian who didn't want to bake the cake for the, for the gay couple. Yeah, we were talking about that. You, yeah, that's, that's one of our favorite topics. <laughs> well, one of the, well, well, I mean, but I mean, that's an easy one. All I'm, all I'm saying is, I, I, I mean, I can't imagine that, that, any, that anybody would, would, would want to force the guy, because the other example is used, should a Jew bake a cake for a Nazi couple? I mean, it's just crazy. My, my only point is this, that obviously I hate racism, I hate bigotry just as much as you do. But, but let me just make the point that, that, that again, that black people made enormous progress from, from I'm, I'm dealing with data that we actually know about, data are, are, are difficult to come by uh, oftentimes, but they made, they made progress just as quickly during the great racist times from the mid-40s to the mid-1960s. In a way, progress seemed to have slowed down later on. But, so, therefore, why did they make progress? Because, because capitalism, the profit and law system, punishes bigots. Because, again, 
again, if you're not going to employ qualified women, qualified LBGT people, qualified blacks, qualified people on your staff, then others will employ them productively, and uh, and that's going to be difficult for you. If you're not going to patronize, if, as a, if you're not going to allow customers in who are black LBGT, then you're cutting off your business. Others will step in and make it difficult for you. So the capitalist system punishes people who are bigots. Now, I furthermore, furthermore, I would want you know the, uh, the replications of the Anti-Defamation League. Although, of course, I think they're a little nuts because they associate Zionism with anti-Semitism. But I would want groups that that would list people who do who don't let uh, blacks in if such still exists if there are business people who do that those people though who pra who practice those things however are unlikely to survive in the competitive marketplace the only reason why they thrive in the south is because of government's laws they were protected by government's laws okay so therefore we do have that and we do have tangible progress on the part of black and then when you ask if you're going to bring government in to prosecute, you know, that guy who went back the cake ultimately lost his cake. When you bring government in, then you open up a can of worms and lunacy that, that could cause more harm than good. You have a government now that preaches, in effect, preaches that any disparate outcome is bad and, and, and will, will accuse anybody of, of, being, of being racist if he doesn't have the requisite number of blacks or women on, on the staff. If this causes, by, by the way, I, 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 I have a long career. I will tell you that, that that those practices with respect to hiring women, because this was especially true where I worked mm. once, was that was that women were because because of pressure, an organization I worked, federal pressure to hire more women. Qualified men were being passed over, and women were being promoted, and women were being promoted who were really not competent, and so that's a disservice to women. All I'm trying to suggest to you is that, is that first of all, understand how capitalism punishes bigots, and second, understand that when you bring in the government, you're often bringing in uh, opportunistic agencies that, that want to expand their power, you're bringing in people who have enormous power and, and who are corrupted by it, who have created ideas about disparate outcomes, and could ultimately do more harm than good. I would argue with you that 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 what's caused the idea that now the Chinese are pitted against the blacks, that's all because of the lunacy of, of this progressive philosophy. We have progressive Harvard broadcasting to the world that the Chinese have terrible personalities. That's the result of the kind of thing you're arguing for. And so I'm, I'm only trying to say that 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 I hate racism, but and, and we're probably never going to completely obliterate it. Uh, but but you might consider. That, that, that the market system protects minorities and that government, once you bring government in, it does more harm than good. With that said, obviously, there should be no laws on the books that allow government-enforced go, government, uh, discrimination. I might remind you that the great hero, Woodrow Wilson, was a raging bigot. You probably perhaps know this story about Wilson, that there was plenty of bigotry in his day, mm -hmm. but, but as soon as he became president, the United States, he fired all of the blacks who had jobs in the federal government in mm. Washington, D.C. So I didn't know that. You, you, you put people in power who are bigoted, and they don't have to pay the price for their bigotry. Mm. It didn't cost him anything to fire competent blacks from the federal government because it wasn't on his dime. But, but if you bring somebody into a corporation who's got competent people on the staff who are black, who are gay, who are LBGT, and, and he fires those competent people, that's very bad news for the bottom line. He, he's, he's going to get penalized by the market. 
So I will try to point out to you those distinctions. Well, I, I think uh, possibly hesitate think, to bring in government uh, to, to solve these problems. Well, I, I think um, the idea that the free market works against bigotry will, will, will get rid of bigotry. I think it may work in some instances, but let's say we have a place like in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, where a business will essentially can decide to uh, ban whoever or does not want to work with certain people, and the community may let them flourish. I said that the, I, I used an example of David well, Duke's cheeseburger. Well, forgive me, I just, may I address your point? I, again, you do understand that if you're going to cite the South, now I assume you're not talking about the South of today, again, understand that what, 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 what happened in the South is that you had Jim Crow laws, and, and you had and you had and you had <clears throat> the, the racist violence directly sanctioned by government. You had you had those things operating, uh, but uh, and that had to be turned. That was the government. And so you, you forgive me, but you're rigging the example by citing that. But then if if, if you blot that out, there are no laws, and 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 any, and then you have, but hopefully, a responsible government that prosecutes violent people for committing violence, uh, and 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 would have prosecuted the Ku Klux Klan for committing violence and crimes. If you have government just doing the job that libertarians, minarchist libertarians, want government to do, then 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 then, then there's another question. Question. If, 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 then you have competitive forces. Then, then you have the potential for for, uh, for for competitive forces to rule. And then the the lash of competition is going to make it increasingly difficult for racists to operate businesses. Because again, if they're not going to if they're not, if they're if they're not going to going to allow certain people to come into their store, others will. Because and those others who will do that are no longer have to fear that that their house is going to get burned. Down by the Ku Klux Klan, they no longer have to fear the violent retribution, basically, of the government, which is what ruled in the South in those days. So, uh, so that's what would happen. And again, I'm only—you uh, might want to focus on on the miraculous fact that even though racism was pretty common and rampant in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, blacks were making progress. So, again, I'm only trying to suggest to you that 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 is a solution. But then I'm suggesting to you on the negative side when you look at what government actually does, actually does today, then I think, I suggest you read Please Stop Helping Us, because government is forcing, is fostering racial resentment. It's fostering, uh, pitting one ethnic group against another. It is doing more harm than good with the interventions that, that it brings about, because, because that's often what government does, because they, because government agencies want to expand their power. They want to stay active. So they're citing people who, who have no bigotry whatsoever. They, they penalize a guy who, who just doesn't want to bake a cake for gay people, even, even though, obviously, there were about 19 other bakeries in that neighborhood that, that would have baked the cake for them, for those people. So that, that's the ugliness and stupidity that results when you bring in government. Yeah. So, uh, again, I'll shut up about that. But that's all I have to say, I only want, only suggest, maybe the uh, only last suggestion is that, is that you might want to read Jason Riley's book, you might want to read jo John McWhorter's book, and, and, and then understand that, please, when Jason Riley writes a book called Please Stop Helping Us, what he really means sarcastically is that you're not helping us 
of all, you're mm. hurting us. And by the way, Jason Riley, by the way, was totally for the glories of, of civil rights. I think I think he didn't quite understand the distinction between what really happened, the civil rights movement, I mean, uh, and the civil and the civil rights. I, I was look, I was in the South picketing against against a, against a racist store. I, I went I went when I was in University of Pennsylvania. So uh, again, I hate racism just as much as you. But, but Jason Riley endorses us. But today, government policies are doing more harm than good. And again, no laws. Let's let's focus the progressives on clearing out the jails from nonviolent black people who are in prison mm -hmm. for drug laws. That that's paramount. That should be highest on the list of priorities. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody can disagree with that. Yeah. Well, uh, if you don't think anybody can disagree with that, 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 then I will tell you that a lot of progressives do disagree with that. They don't. They don't understand, in terms of their actual approach, that that uh, the, the basic principle, which is that the basic principle being that that the government bears a very heavy burden of proof if it's going to lock you in a cage for a victimless crime. I mean, they, they, I, I hosted a debate between Alex Berenson, formerly of the New York Times, uh, and with a libertarian who was, again, who, uh, on the drug laws, and Alex Berenson was basically scaring the hell out of the audience. He's, uh, he's a smart guy, he's a New York Times progressive, and he's saying, do you really want a, a store on every street corner selling heroin? Do you really? I mean, I, I look, that might scare the hell out of you. You know, he can conjure up any kind of crazy fantasy where he has to be brought to, to mind is that there is that heavy burden of proof on you. You're locking people in a cage. Uh, the, we, 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 have boo, we have alcohol sold on every street corner. Uh, yeah. And we obviously we have to worry about drunken drivers. But do we really want prohibition to come back? So, uh, again, I would only tell you that, that that's an important lesson for progressives like Alex Berenson to learn because I hosted a debate about that. And I, and I heard what many progressives actually think. And by the way, many conservatives, I should mention, who are, who are free market, who are very, very frightened. Cocaine, mm. heroin, opium. How, how awful to make all of these things legal. You know, obviously they don't want prohibition to come back, but, but, they, but, but, they, but they think they're being very liberal by allowing cannabis, cannabis to be sold. And by the way, cannabis to be sold stupidly with a lot of heavy government taxes. Oh, man, on, it's crazy out here in California. Which drives an underground, which means that you still flourish. This is still is a flourishing underground market yeah. in marijuana because the government taxes it. Out here, stupidly. Yeah, out out here so it's it's the, the it's terrible. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible out here, the taxes and then the, I just heard that they're gonna raise them even higher. It's just it's nuts. Well, well, what it do, and what it does is it means that the evils of, of pushing it underground continue uh -huh. mm -hmm. because yeah. that's what government wants. Uh -huh. So those lessons, those lessons really do have to be learned by progressives. We could spend a lot of time teaching progressives those lessons, but primarily teaching them that if you care enough about freedom, if, if you care enough about putting people in a cage, then yes, you can get carried away with nightmare fantasies about heroin being sold on every corner and everybody shooting up with needles, but, <laughs> but, but recognize that that's just a fantasy and, and that you have to default to the position of freedom and you also again have to understand, yeah, I mean, of course it's an interesting irony that by and large there is no real, real underground market in alcohol to 
speak of, but that that's partly because it's a liquid. It's partly because it's very difficult for the underground market to create decent alcohol. It's basically just bathtub gin. But it, but with so many of these other drugs like marijuana, it's much easier for a, for an underground market to come in. That's what we have to teach the progressives. And and then by the way, those people who were against legalization of marijuana complain that we really haven't stamped out the evils of of the uh, of the underground market. And so that too, then then they complain about it, not realizing it's all because of the taxes that government is imposing. All of those lessons have got to be learned. The they're, ta- they're, the not, ta- they're not no brainers for, for progressives. Yeah, the taxes and also that if you want to if you want to open a business, all the restrictions and the uh, the fees that you have to pay they make it really really hard for somebody to you know, who doesn't have a lot of money to even get in the business. So it's like they, they pick the oh. winners as well. Oh, yeah. Well, no, you, you, you also prompt me what else should be done for people of limited means. Now, you, you have to go through more bureaucratic red hoops yeah. to open a bodega in the Bronx uh, than, than to open up a software firm in Silicon Valley. You know, all, all of the, the, the ways in which people of limited means who save some money, who want to start a small business, the ways in which the bureaucracy chokes them in so many ways, all of that has to be addressed. All of that. And again, the agenda that I suggest for progressives is to understand, under, understand the distortions of the real estate market, understand that, that the unaffordability of housing is based, as, as Thomas Sowell said, what stares you in the face, where government is most active in local real estate markets, that's where housing is unaffordable. That The affordable housing market should recognize that you make housing affordable by pushing government out, not, not, mm. not by fostering every not in my backyard kind of policy. That's beginning to change. The, you know, it's beginning to call the YIMBY rather than the NIMBY, the yes in my backyard. Mm-hmm. You know, that, yeah. uh, that, that kind of philosophy. That's, that, yeah, and, and there too, uh, uh, progressives who are self-righteous uh, don't understand that, they're, that the house they bought that's worth a couple of million dollars is part of the problem. Uh, those lessons also have to be learned. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Let's jump on to the next question. Oh, my God. You guys. (laughs) It's an hour and a half. It's an hour and a half. You must be be sick of hearing me. It's been an hour. Oh, I I love hearing you, Gene. (laughs) This is really interesting, to be honest. Um, Usually we just argue. But next time we should probably... Okay, okay. Yeah, let's go ahead. Maybe one more question? One more question. How about I'll let you choose. How about that? We could do, we could, we we could meet again. You know, could schedule sure. me another time. Yeah, that'd be great. But I'm getting a little hoarse. No, no, I, I, yeah. I understand. I understand. Okay, so we can wrap it up, or do you want to do one more question? Well, one more question is fine. Okay, yeah, and you, you had a question. I think yes, you said. I'll let you, I'll let you choose. There's a couple of questions in here. Um, okay, you can choose. Sure, yeah. uh, what, I'll choose the easy one. Go there on. you go. There you go. <laughs> what What are your thoughts on the Supreme Court willing to take up Trump's broad claim of protection from investigation? That's one. Oh wow. Oh, or, wow. Or uh, which of the Democratic candidates would you vote for if you had to vote for them? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, he won't get an answer out of me on that one. And the last one, what kind of financial advice do you have for young people or for poor people? Oh, for poor people? Financial advice for poor people? Oh, God. <laughs> well, um, poor, poor people are being shafted by government. They probably have uh, more difficulty uh, saving money. Uh, the, the easy one for, for young people as a group... Uh, for young people as a group, uh, then uh, you should. That's the easy one. Uh, you, uh, if you have a job, then then almost every employer has some kind of 401k plan. Mm-hmm. I've been taught that that really is just a 
yeah, it's it's easy for an employer to just file uh, with a four hundred one k plan, which is like I mean, yeah, that's tax deductible retirement. There are Roth plans as well where it's taxable money, but the profits are not taxed. And so I do suggest to uh, to to young people because they're not all poor. If you have a, if you have some kind of job, start. Uh, start a 401k plan. Uh, it's relatively painless. Uh, the, the, the idea that you have to own real estate, have to own a house in order to have a nest egg really is not true anymore. Uh, you can build up a nest egg by, uh, by, by just buying uh, the stock market. I don't think the stock market is going to do as well uh, over the next 30 years as it has done over the last 30 but I think it's I think it's going to beat inflation. I still think it's the best place to invest, mm. and it's going to have its ups and downs. It's going to collapse and rebound. Uh, but uh, but you're in for the long haul. Yep. In addition, uh, by the way, uh, if uh, it's conceivable that also the 401k plan could be a rainy day fund. Yeah. Uh, right by that I mean a rainy day fund. If you need some money, you can raise your some of your 401k. Even though there's a 10 percent penalty right. if you take out the money, you're likely to be in the lower bracket. Uh, but so uh, so I would say. That um, and 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 it's amazing. Of uh, course, a lot of employers who match your four hundred one k. I was at News Corp and Dow Jones, and of course, so I was lucky. I did have matching four hundred one k, and I was astonished at uh, at the seven figure sum I managed to accumulate. I was only a, only a salaried person wow. on my four hundred one k, and so that can happen uh, to you too. Uh, you know, slow but steady mm-hmm. uh, can get you there. In addition, I would say investment wise, returning to your earlier question, uh, I do see. Uh, the uh, the potential fiscal crisis of the state in about you know fifteen to twenty years. Mm-hmm. I do continually cite the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office in talking about the runaway debt. This had something to do with my debate about the, about the the bogus Social Security trust fund, and so. I do think that potentially there could be instability in money, instability in the dollar, as the government scrambles to print money in order to pay its uh, pay the debt. And so I do think that uh, some ownership of Bitcoin and possibly of gold uh, is a decent hedge uh, against those eventualities. Uh, and uh, that would mean that possibly you know every month you buy you know allocate. Uh, uh, let's say allocate $100 a month to buying some Bitcoin and buying gold. In other words, do it every month, and that's sort of like the other sort of knows slow but steady. It's it's called income averaging. It means that you're buying $100 worth of gold, $100 worth of Bitcoin, whatever the price. So if the price is down, you'll buy more of it. If the price is up, you'll buy uh-huh. less of it, but it'd be a steady $100 a month. So if you have a kind of some kind of a job in, in those terms, uh, I came a little bit late to that kind of plan. I was in my early 30s. Of course, I was married and had kids by the time I started to do that. But if you have a job and you're 25, then recognize that I'm 75. That was 50 years ago. I was 25. And it does go by relatively fast. Sure uh, does. You are. <laughs> I am surprised. That I have to keep reminding. It's probably the reason why I keep telling people I'm still alive at 75. I have to keep reminding myself that I'm actually <laughs> 75. I'm no longer 25. And so, unfortunately, time does fly. Uh, so that's my best advice to, uh, and then mm-hmm. you had those other two questions. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Well, you know, all presidents deserve to be impeached. They all, yes. they all violate the Constitution. Uh, amen. And so I have no great interest in whether Trump survives uh, impeachment or not. Okay. Uh, it's not a big deal to me. Uh, and then uh, that other difficult question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Would I vote for? Would I vote for if I had to vote Democrat? <laughs> no, obviously, it doesn't really matter. You know, I, I, 
I'm, I, I'm, I'm at ease with the, the decision about voting in a presidential election since I live in New York State. Mm. And I guess what? I guess, I guess I, you know, I have never looked this up. I guess Ronald Reagan was the last Republican who actually did win New York State. Would that have been in 1988? I guess he did. But then that would be, um, what, that's 30 years ago. Yeah, there's so, also true I mean, California. Yeah, California too. That's yeah, all, same here. California. Last time a Republican won California was Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah. So the point is that when, when given the electoral, the reality of the electoral college, given given that New York State goes like a, by the margin of a million votes, uh, because ludicrously, obviously, how can any single vote make any difference anyway? But but I'm an old-fashioned person. I tend to vote. In 1968, yeah. guys, I was I was you know I was a draft dodger. I was going to go to prison if I had to be. Uh, 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 drafted. Uh, I didn't want to leave the country. I was going to go to prison. Although I managed to dodge the draft, I demonstrated in Chicago against the Democratic convention that nominated Hubert Humphrey, who was a uh -huh. warmonger. I was supporting Eugene McCarthy at the time. And then I remember walking into the polling booth and asking, I'd like to do a write-in. And uh, can you tell me how to do that? And the woman behind the desk looked at me glaringly and she said, angry young man, you know, angry young man, I'm going to do a write-in. I'm not going to vote for either the Democrat or the Republican, which in that case was the Democrat was Hubert Humphrey, the Republican was Richard Nixon. I'm still an angry young man, so I, I vote <laughs> uh, I vote Libertarian. And of course, it doesn't make any, any difference in New York State. Might as well just vote the candidate you want because the Democratic candidate is going to win by a margin of a million votes anyway. Yeah. But, but, but that's talking your question. Probably I would vote, you know, I would hold my nose the lesser evil. I didn't like the fact that Bloomberg, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, uh, was, uh, you know, that when he took a, a control, he had, he, he, he outlawed smoking in bars. And uh, my solution would be, Mr. Bloomberg, you're worth, you know, $10 billion at the time, allocated a billion to opening up Bloomberg bars, which prohibits smoking, and then people will go to those bars, and people have their choice in free market. So Bloomberg, and of course then he had the soda ban. Yep. Bloomberg is obviously mm -hmm. uh, not my kind of person, and, and by, on top of everything else, I happen to know in my industry that if you ever quit as a reporter working for Bloomberg Communications, they never take you back. You know, mm. once you quit, they will never hire you again. It was like Bloomberg's really, really a disgusting philosophy. So he's not, he's not the, not my kind of guy. On the other hand, he is a businessman and he seems to, seems to be a reasonable voice of sanity. So, so it was clearly, if I, if I had somebody had held a gun to my head <laughs> and said, vote for a Democrat, and then I, then I guess I would vote for Bloomberg in the primaries. What, what surprises me is that you know, all the pundits who know about these things, uh, I'll have to shut this off, all the pundits who know about these things say Bloomberg doesn't stand a chance, but the odd part of it is that he didn't stand a chance when he was running for mayor years ago. <laughs> and I was, uh, he was, I mean, they, they thought it was a joke. Uh -huh. He was running against a progressive uh, uh, at the time, and he was going to lose, and yet he won. And he and he, and, he, uh, and he got reelected twice, so uh, who the hell knows? Anyway, yeah. I guess that most, more or less kisses off your questions with whatever yeah. I can do. It's a pleasure yeah. talking with you guys. Like yeah, we really and, appreciate uh, it. An hour Thank and 40 you. minutes of, uh, of going over all kinds of issues, and so yeah. it's been fun. Yeah, so, I really, uh, I really appreciate you doing this, Gene. Yeah, I really appreciate your indulgence. Sure. Yeah. This morning. Sure. Not only that, I appreciate sure. all the all the work. I love, I love the Soho Forum and all that stuff. I mean, uh, it's just, I think it's a wonderful thing. Incredibly entertaining. Well, thanks very much.
Yeah. Thanks very much, guys, and and uh, please please come say hello if you do come to the Soul Forum in New York City if you're ever passing through, mm-hmm. and uh, a free drink at the bar if uh, if you say Tom Woods to me. That's been my policy. <laughs> that's right. On. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to the Scott Horton Bill Crystal debate. And when is that? Oh, May. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's in, that's May 11th. Yeah, and we're, we're we're renting a much larger hall for that one. That's going to be uh, good. I've got to, I've got to take a phone call. Guys. Okay, no problem. All right, thank you very so much, Gene. Thank you, Gene. Talk, talk to you soon, guys. Uh-huh. Bye bye. Bye.